Here we are in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in my heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would bear great fruit in our lives as we study it now. I pray, God, that you would help us to have soft hearts, soft to your word, soft to your leading. 
And that today, as we hear your voice, we would not harden our hearts as in the rebellion. Thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Nobody's perfect. We all, we all can agree with that. Nobody's perfect. And yet we all have a lot of different ideas about how God relates to us as imperfect people. We all have a lot of ideas about how God sees and responds to our wrongdoing or our sin. Specifically, I think, there's three wrong ways of, view, of, of thinking about how God views your sin, your wrongdoing. And I think each of us is inclined to believe one of these lies about who God is and how he sees our wrongdoings. Some of us believe that God is an enabling friend and that he sees your wrongdoing and he doesn't think it's a very big deal as long as you're true to yourself. But the truth is that God is a better friend. He's kind enough to point out your destructive habits. He loves you too much to allow you to continue in them. God is not an enabling friend. Some of you believe that God is a disappointed father, that he doesn't just see your wrongdoing, but he's holding it over your head. I can't believe you haven't gotten this together yet. And that's a lie, friends. God is not a disappointed father. The truth is that he's a better father because he's kind enough to forgive. He loves you too much to allow your sin to separate you from him. He's a gentle teacher, not a disappointed father. God is not a disappointed father. And God is not an authoritarian leader. That's another lie that we're inclined to believe about how God sees our sin. We think that God believes that we, or, or we see God as an authoritarian leader. We believe that God has created arbitrary rules that we have to follow and submit to, and if we don't, then we'll be burned. God is not an authoritarian leader. He's a better leader than that. His commands, I say this all the time, but his commands are not a straitjacket to keep you from having fun. His commands are signposts to point you to where true life can be found. God is not an authoritarian leader. He's a better leader. He's leading you, guiding you like a gentle shepherd to life. And no matter which one of these three wrong ways of thinking about how God sees your sin and rebellion and wrongdoing and shortcomings... No matter which one of these three pictures you're inclined towards the most, the cross of Christ corrects them all. Where Jesus gave himself to die for our sin. The cross of Christ proves that God is not an enabling friend. He will never sweep your sin under the cosmic rug of the universe. He's going to deal with it by having his own son pay for it. It's costly, but he's going to deal with it. God is not an enabling friend. The cross of Christ proves that God is not a disappointed father. God is so full of grace that he would pay for your sin, pay your penalty that you've earned with his own son's life. 
The cross of Christ proves that God is not a disappointed father. And the cross of Christ proves that God is not an authoritarian leader. Because he's for life, not death. He gave his own son and Christ conquered death, rising from the grave himself and raising you up with him if you look to him in faith. God is not an authoritarian leader. He's fighting for your life. And the cross is also our hope for change, real change, lasting change in this life and the life to come. Because all of our hope is rooted not in our own strength, but in God's grace. And today we're going to come to a passage in the book of Hebrews where we're going to get a picture of how God views our sin. We're going to see that God takes it very seriously. He's not sweeping it under the rug like an enabling friend. But we're also going to see that he's not going to just leave us in it. He's going to help us. He's going to change us and ultimately bring us to a better future not just where we're a more self-actualized version of ourselves, but where we are with him forever. The main point I want you to take away today as we look at Hebrews 3 and 4 is that true faith in Jesus will change your life today and forever because God sees your wrongdoing and he's going to deal with it. True faith in Jesus will change your life today and forever. Christ does not just get added onto your life as like an optional add-on. He's not like a dessert that you add to the end of the meal so that you go to, he- go to heaven instead of hell when you die. Christ does not just get added onto your life. He completely reorients it, transforming your life today and your destiny forever. True faith in Jesus will change your life today and forever. And we find this truth from the book of Hebrews. We've been studying the book of Hebrews over the last several months. And we see the main idea of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything. So don't let go of him. As you see the allure of sin, don't let go of Jesus because he's better than it. As you feel the guilt from your own wrongdoing, don't let go of Jesus because he's stronger than it. Jesus is better than anything, so don't let go of him. You are a wrongdoer. You are a sinner. You are a rebel. You are a mess. And Jesus sees you with love and compassion, and he's going to give you hope. And this passage today, it is a long unit. It's a lot longer than we normally take on a Sunday morning. But the reason I wanted to address it all together is because what the author is going to do here is he's going to take one passage of Scripture from the Old Testament, from Psalm 95, and then he's just going to unfold it in a bunch of different ways. It's a sermon on Psalm 95 that we're going to read together and dissect. And so that's where he begins his sermon, this passage. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, I want you to notice that the words of the, words of the Bible are not man's opinion, but it's the word of God. Where did this passage come from? It came from the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because the Bible is God's word, we don't just come to it and take it or leave it. Because the Bible is God's word, we must bow 
in submission to it. We cannot harden our hearts. That's what he's warning you against. He's warning you, don't do it. Don't harden your hearts. What does it mean to harden your heart? To have a hard heart is to have a fixed attitude of disobedience towards God. In other words, you've heard his word, you've understood his commands, and you've chosen actively to disobey. And the more times you do that, the easier it becomes. Maybe when you were a kid, you took money from your mom's purse and you went bought a Slurpee or something. That's not a specific example at all. It's definitely a specific example. You took money from your mom's purse one time and you felt horrible about it. And then you took it the next time and you're like, I didn't get caught last time. There was no consequences. And so the next time you take the money, it's a little bit easier. And the third time you take the money, it's a lot easier. And the fourth time you take the money, your fingers are so sticky, you're like grabbing like your whole driver's license and everything. That's what hardening of your heart looks like. Except rebellion against God is a lot more costly than snatching money from your mom's purse. Because God is infinitely holy. God's the ruler of all the universe. And so hardening our hearts against him is infinitely dangerous. It's deadly. And so there's a warning here. Do not harden your hearts because there's consequences. And he goes on to explain those consequences by using an example. Another story from the Old Testament. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. He's using a story from Israel's past to illustrate his point about hardening your heart. So the Bible has two major divisions, two major sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament primarily deals with God establishing a people for himself from the children of Abraham, the nation of Israel the nation of Israel. And God delivered his nation, his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. It's an incredible story. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. And when Israel was in the wilderness, God was saying to them, I'm going to take you to the promised land, the wonderful land, where you'll have all the resources that you'll need, where I'll dwell with you, where you'll be my people. It'll be like a new Eden where I'll dwell with you forever. The Israelites saw God's grace. They heard God's commands. They understood his commands. But instead of obeying God, they put him to the test. They didn't trust him to bring them into the promised land. And as a result, they were punished. And even throughout their whole time in the wilderness, they spent 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites, wandering around the desert as a consequence of their sin. And even throughout those whole 40 years, they continued to test God. They complained about the food. They questioned their leaders. They doubted God's promises. They disbelieved God's commands. They bowed to the nations and said it to the Lord who created them. They put God to the test for 40 years. What was God's response? Verse 10, therefore I was provoked with that generation. That generation's disbelief and rebellion pushed God 
to a response. And God said to them, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God is angry in response to sin, and so he punishes. The Israelites can't go into the land until the entire generation of rebels dies in the wilderness. And so that's the background of Psalm 95. Now the author of the Hebrews is going to take that passage from Psalm 95 and he's going to preach it to you and he's going to apply it. And he's going to draw out, I think, two, two main truths from Psalm 95. The first one is that true faith in Jesus will change your life today. True faith in Jesus will change your life today. It will change your life today because you will obey God. You will trust him to guide you. And notice that we don't obey God to earn his love and to earn his blessing. We obey God because he's already changed us. That's the difference between Christianity and every other major world religion. Every other major world religion says, obey God and he will bless you. Christianity says, God has blessed you, so come to him to find true life and he will help you obey him. See the difference? You see the difference? And so there's a warning that's given in verse 12. Take care, brothers. This is urgent. Take care. Don't miss it. Don't be passive. Don't fall asleep. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he tells you to watch out. And what are you watching for? He's telling you to watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart. Why is that so dangerous? What's the big deal about an evil, unbelieving heart? Well, it will lead you to fall away from the living God. Your heart is evil. Your heart is unbelieving. You need to watch out for that because it will call you away from God. Follow your heart. Worst slogan ever. Do not let your kids watch movies that say follow your heart because that's telling them to fall away from the living God. Don't follow your heart. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. He's better than your evil heart. And notice here that what's, what the problem was was unbelief. The difference between the people who are truly changed by God and those who are not is unbelief. It's true faith in Jesus that could change your life today. So what do we do? We know that there's this danger that we're watching out for. So what do we do about it? Verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to take care. We're to watch out for an evil and unbelieving heart. And how are we to do that? Not by looking in at ourselves, but by looking at other people. How do we take care and watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart? We do it in the church. We do it in the context of God's people. If you're a Christian, you are your brother's keeper. Faith in Jesus is not just a me and God kind of thing. Like, I have my own private religion. 
Faith in Jesus is a family event. Jesus has caused you to be born again to a new family. You don't just have a new father, but you've got a whole bunch of brothers and sisters with him. The church exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why? Why should we care so much about one another? Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. We care for one another because we have the same king, Jesus. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Not everyone who professes faith in Christ has been truly changed by Jesus. And how do you know the difference Do we have an x-ray tool that we can use to determine whose heart has truly been changed by Jesus? No, we can't do that right now. But the way that we know who truly has been saved by Jesus is those who continue in their original confidence firmly to the end. You can't give up. You need to hold on to Christ. And again, friends, I want you to notice here. What are you holding on to? You're not holding on to yourself. You're not holding on to, I think I'm good enough to get to heaven. You're holding on to your original confidence. And our confidence, the confidence of Christianity has never been in ourselves, but in Jesus. If you go to church and become a better person and you read your Bible every day and you try to pray every day and you don't trust in Jesus, you're going to hell. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are. That confidence, it's a bad confidence. It's going to put you to shame on the last day because you're not good enough. We just confessed at the beginning and I tricked all of you into agreeing with it. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. You're not good enough. If your confidence is in yourself, I'm good enough. I'm true enough. I believe my own heart. That's a bad confidence. It's not a trustworthy confidence. It's like building a house out of licorice. It's going to fall down. Hold on to your original confidence, which is Christ. Jesus, who is the only person who doesn't raise his hand and say, yeah, nobody's perfect. I agree with that. He says, no, I'm perfect. And because Jesus is perfect, he had no debt to pay. He had no punishment to pay for sin. And yet he died on the cross being punished by God, not for his own crimes. He had none of them. But for our crimes, Jesus died in our place and rose again victoriously from the grave. And he's seated on the throne today. So look to him in faith and find life. Hold on to your original confidence, the confidence that we have in Christ And hold on to it to the end. That's the only way that we as humans today could know who really is born again and who's not. It's by looking for perseverance. Hold on to your original confidence. Verse 15, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So he's coming back to Psalm 95 and he's going to unfold it for you. For who, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Who does Psalm 95 talk about rebelling? The passage we read earlier. It's talking about the Israelites who were saved from slavery in Egypt. 
And I want you to notice something about those people. Because they were saved from slavery in Egypt, they had seen and experienced God's grace. They had seen God's power to save them. But their heart was cold. They didn't trust God. They didn't have true faith. They'd seen some miraculous things, but they didn't trust God. And so their, their hearts were no good. Verse 17, he's going to ask another question. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Who was God angry with? He was angry with those who disbelieved him, and as a result of their disbelief, disobeyed him, and as a result of their disobedience, were punished. Our sins have massive consequences. We deserve to die away from the promised land, away from God forever. And that's why we need to hold on to Christ as our original confidence, because our sin is costly and we need him to deal with it. Verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Notice verse 19. Again, what's the root of all of it? Unbelief. Why were they cut off from God's blessing? Unbelief. Why didn't they enter the promised land? Unbelief. Christianity is not about cleaning yourself up and becoming a better person. It's about looking to Jesus who is a better savior and finding life in him, believing in him, trusting in him. Why does God save through faith? God could save through anything. And he chooses to save through faith. Faith is all that we bring to the table. We bring our sin and our faith, and God saves us. Why? Because faith says, I trust God, not myself. Faith is not a good deed that we bring to God. Oh, God, I believed in you good enough. Will you let me into heaven? Faith is saying, I've got nothing. My wallet is empty. My cup is dry. I've got nothing good to offer. God, will you fill me up? Will you give me life? That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It's not that Christians are better people, holier than thou. It's that Christians have been changed by the Jesus whom they believed in. We're not better than you if you're not a Christian today. We're not better than you. We just believe in Jesus, who is better than you. True faith in Jesus will change your life today and forever. The root of Israel's sin and the root of our sin was unbelief. Not trusting God to do what he said. Not trusting God to be what he's been. And I want you to know that the reverse is true also. If disbelief will lead you to follow your evil, disbelieving heart away from God. True faith in Jesus will enable you to serve God. It'll change your life today. God is not an authoritarian leader demanding change, saying, fix yourself right now. That is not what God's saying to you. He's a kind helper, and he wants to change you from the inside out. Saying your heart is evil and unbelieving. I'm going to clean you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to gently guide you. 
What you believe drives what you do. So that's why it's so important to realize that Christianity is not a self-improvement project. It's not a crutch for weak people. It's a defibrillator for dead people. Jesus changes you from the inside out. He changes your broken heart, zaps life into you. And because he's changed you on the inside, you're able to follow him on the outside. You see how he's the savior? He's the helper. He's the healer. It's not on us. We can't do it. What you believe drives what you do. And how could it be otherwise? How could you claim to believe in something if it had no impact on your life? If I drove you to the airport, you said, I need a, I need a ride to the airport, or maybe we're going on a trip together, and I'm driving you to the airport. We get, I drive past Reagan, and you're like, okay, I guess we're going to a different airport. Maybe we're going to Dulles. But I pull off to the side of the road, and there's this like dumpy little biplane, and like the wing is literally falling off. And like the engine is smoking. It's not even on, and it's smoking. And I'm like, all right, you have a good trip. I'm going to head back to Reagan. But I trust this plane will carry you all the way. You, it'll be great. Hold on to it, man. Just uh, make sure the life vest is there. Uh, you might want to check for a parachute. Uh, but you have a nice trip. I'll see you on the other side. I could not with any kind of integrity say that I trusted that plane because I'm not getting on it. And you could not say that you trust in Jesus if you're not following him. You see, the trust, the faith comes first. We don't follow Jesus so he'll love us. We follow Jesus because he has loved us. We don't follow Jesus to earn his love. He's already showered us with his love. True faith in Jesus will change your life today and forever. Fight sin with faith. Because this isn't just the beginning of your Christian life. This is every day of your Christian life. If you want to become more like Jesus, start by believing him. Christianity is not about behavior modification, saying no to a certain action. Christianity is about being transformed by the truth of God. So when you're stuck in a pattern and a habit of sin, don't just try to white knuckle and fix yourself. That's not how the Christian life began. That's not how it's going to continue. Hold on to your original confidence, Jesus. You don't graduate from Jesus and, and you, you start depending on yourself. You hold on to Jesus. And so when you're stuck in a pattern or a habit of sin and rebellion, yeah, ask yourself, what practical steps could I take to slay this sin? But also ask yourselves, what truths about God am I doubting? that are leading me in this sin? What lies about God am I believing that are pushing me in this sin? Let me give you an example that I think is going to cut very close to all of our hearts, including and especially maybe mine, complaining. Complaining is a perfectly acceptable sin in our culture, but according to the Bible, it's deadly. Complaining is a sin. And yet we are so quick to complain about everything. Why? What lies about God are we believing? What lies about ourselves are we believing when we complain? We're believing that God hasn't been kind to us. 
We're believing that we deserve better. What truths about God are we forgetting or disbelieving when we complain? We're forgetting, we're disbelieving that God has been kind to us. That he's provided so abundantly for us. We're disbelieving that. True faith in Jesus will change your life today. Don't just try to stop sin. Look to Jesus. True faith in Jesus will change your life today. And the second point, true faith in Jesus will change your life forever. Because true faith says that only Jesus can bring me to eternal rest. True faith says I'm going to trust Jesus to do what only he can do. The author of the Hebrews continues, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, in light of Israel's sin and punishment, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So God promised Israel rest. He said, I'm going to bring you to the promised land. Israel failed to reach that rest. And the author of the Hebrews is saying, this is a cautionary tale for you Christians. God has promised the church eternal rest in a place much better than Israel, in the new Jerusalem. Why would we fail to reach it? He's saying that we need to take care. We need to fear lest we would fail to reach it. Why would we fail to reach it? What's the risk? Look at verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Israel knew God's grace. He had saved them from slavery in Egypt. Some of the worst conditions imaginable. God saved them from it because he's kind and because he's good to his people. But a generation didn't believe it. They weren't united by faith. And friends, you might know about God's grace. You might know all about it. You might know the Bible backwards and forwards, and it's not any good for you if you're not united by faith with God. If you're not united by faith with those who listen, verse 2 says, with the church. The church is not a club. The church is the people of God. It's not a thing that you can come to. It's a people that you could be a part of. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not something that you do. It's something that God has done in us, giving us saving faith. And that difference has eternal significance. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Disbelief disqualifies us from that rest. Because disbelief in God means that we're believing in ourselves and we are crummy saviors. But notice here what he says. They shall not enter my rest. Whose rest are we talking about? We're talking about God's rest. And when did God rest? God rested at the beginning of the Bible story in Genesis chapter 2 when he created the heavens and the earth. He's going to go on. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, 
And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. The Bible begins with a story of God creating the world. And it's an awesome poem which tells the story of God creating the world in a picture of seven days. And on the seventh day, God rested. It's quoted here from Genesis chapter 2. God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. God rested not because he was tired, but because his works were finished. God rested not as an act of inactivity and laziness, but like sitting on a throne to rule and reign. He's kicking his feet up, not on a lazy boy, but on a throne. And God's inviting us to his rest. Your future, if you've trusted in Christ, is to be with God forever. Resting and reigning with Christ. Verse 5, and again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Okay, so this, this part of the passage gets tricky. So just track with me. He's, he's, re, he's restating the risk. This rest is available, but just like the Israelites, some people are missing it because of disobedience. Verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This rest is available. Some people are missing it because they're disobeying, because their hearts haven't been changed. So hold on, because this rest is still available. And he proves that it's still available by quoting from David, who says, today, if you hear his voice. And David said that, notice in verse 7, David said that so long afterward, after Israel had already come and gone from the promised land. He says through David so long afterwards, which means that this text is obviously not just about Israel getting into the promised land, but it's also about something more. It's about us entering eternal rest with God forever. And then he gives another reason to believe that. Verse 8, for if Joshua, that's the successor of Moses, who actually brought God's people out of the wilderness into the promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Joshua did what Moses couldn't do, bring the people into the promised land. And yet there's something else that Joshua can't do, bring God's people into perfect rest. A better rest, an eternal rest. Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So again, we're looking forward to a great rest, a rest with God. The incredible thing about the Christian hope is not that we get to be more comfortable. We'll get to like float on a cloud and be in a slightly more comfortable version of this world but that we'll live in an entirely new world with God. Nothing to separate us from him because our sin has been paid for. 
That's the rest that we get to look forward to. It's rest with God. Verse 11, one more warning. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He gives another warning that judgment is coming through the all-powerful word of God. God sees everything and is able to destroy everything. Nothing can hide from God's perfect sight. You might think today about some secret sin that you have, and you say, I'm not going to deal with that. That's fine. I'm true to myself. You're seeing God as an enabling friend, and he's not. He sees your sin with perfect clarity, and his word of judgment is able to split things that aren't even splittable, like the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. God's word of judgment is able to split the atom. And verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. You cannot hide from God. He sees you with perfect clarity and you are naked and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. God sees through every pretense, every costume, every mask, Everything that you do that you think makes you look good, God sees through it all. There's no faking it with him. You need a better covering because you cannot hide. And that covering is available. It's the righteousness of Christ. Of Christ. Again, coming to God with empty hands and saying, I've got nothing good to offer you, God. Save me by your grace. And we trust God to take us all the way. This judgment is coming, friends. How do we live in light of it? The first thing that we need to do is look to Christ. Hold fast to your original confidence. If you're not a Christian... The message that I want you to know today is you're not good enough. God is holy. You are not. He's a king. You're a rebel. You need to be punished for your war crimes against the king. And the only option is that you would take that punishment on yourself as we all deserve or that Christ would take it in your place. Look to Christ in faith, believing you're not good enough, but that he is. And find life in him because he's resurrected from the grave. He's conquered even death itself. He is worthy of your trust. And Christians don't graduate from that. You don't start with Jesus and move on to self. You need to hold firm to your original confidence because only Jesus can take you all the way. So hold on to him. We live in light of this final judgment. By holding on to Christ. And we look to Christ not just for life, but for purpose in that life. 
We live for Jesus because nothing is better. So stop living for your own pleasure and comfort. Sometimes our pleasure and comfort and our pursuit of it is sinful. Like we find comfort in things that God has condemned. But we need to get serious about fighting that sin. Because by it, some have failed to enter this rest. So get accountable. And sometimes pleasure isn't sin, but you sin with it. It's not like you're doing something inherently bad, but you're doing it in a bad way. Maybe by overindulging in it or not receiving it with thankfulness. Or because it's getting in the way of you following God to glorify Christ among every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's God's plan for your life, that you would lay down your life to know Jesus and make him known in D.C. and around the world. You were created for God, not yourself. So lay your life down here, knowing that God has promised you a better rest forever. You're created to rest with God. So don't settle for naps here. True faith in Jesus will change your life today and forever. So follow Jesus. He gives you true life, frees you from death. He frees you from the sin inside of you, and he gives you true purpose. Isaiah chapter 55 says, Come and drink from the well. Without money and without price, come and buy true life. The true life that's found in Jesus, which you can buy today, friends, without money and without price. It's a free offer of life. Take that life and walk in it by God's Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would trust it. We would believe in you, Jesus. You are our only hope. So help us to believe in you. It's for your name we pray. Amen.